screen. Can everyone hear me all right? <laughs> I think that's yes. Uh, it's a joy to be with you all. It's a joy to see you all in person, to see your faces. Uh, Jake as well, we've, uh, Emily and I have been able to call home for over a year now. Uh, and it has, in so many ways, been a blessing, absolute blessing to us. And that includes the leadership and staff here. It includes the building that we have to worship together. It includes all of you uh, who have collectively nourished and, spirit and uh, spiritually nourished and uh, provided for one another. And that is just another tangible sign of God's grace in our lives. Uh, as, as Pastor Minoj said, my name is Amar or Amar. Peterman. Uh, a bit about me, I was adopted from New Delhi, India before I was a year old. I was raised in the Midwest in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so, yes, I am a very big Green Bay Packer fan, but we'll save that for post-service post conversation. Uh, I became a Christian in high school. Like most people, uh, I grew up in a Christian home, a loving Christian home. Uh, my faith was very much my parents. I went through the motions of it until middle school and early high school where my faith uh, had to become my own. I had to make a decision uh, in facing hard trials and facing uh, the struggles of life as we all do. I had to decide if I was actually going to believe what I heard uh, in church, what I heard on Sunday, what I heard from my parents. And I decided that I would. And so I accepted Christ in high school. I soon began working at a church that I grew up in as a worship leader. Uh, I was one of three worship leaders on staff and I did that my sophomore my senior year of high school, that drove me into uh, a call to ministry in some capacity. And so uh, I moved a little bit south to downtown Chicago and attended Moody Bible Institute, where I received a degree in biblical studies and theology. But more importantly, uh, that's where I met my wife, Emily. And so we were married before my senior year of, of undergrad, uh, and she had just graduated. And then after that, we came right here to, uh, to New Jersey, and I began my MDiv program at Princeton Seminary, uh, and this fall will begin my final, my third year of, of that program. And so I'm currently a full-time student uh, at Princeton Seminary studying uh, my Masters of Divinity with a focus on American evangelicalism and the history of American evangelicalism. And then, uh, as, as Brother Minoj said, I also work full-time in the nonprofit sector. Uh, I direct a program for the IDEOS Institute called the IDEOS Center for Empathy in Christian and Public Life, which, as he mentioned, is a very long title. Uh, but let's now turn to the text that we just that we just read together from uh, Sister Lizanne. If you were paying attention, uh, this is this is a haymaker of a text. There's nothing nothing short of it. It is a punch. Uh, it is a punch square to the jaw. Uh, and so I want to. Uh, we will dig through this hard passage, and we will do it because we believe that the Word of God is authoritative, that it is inerrant, that it teaches us and gives us the tools and the guidance we need to live out our spiritual lives and our Christian life, our public life, uh, our relational life. And so because we revere this text, because we believe it is authoritative, we take each piece of it, even these texts that are terribly difficult, uh, and we approach them to see what the Lord would have for us. And so before we begin, we're going to enter into, we're going to talk a bit about the background of this text, the context leading up to it. But before we do that, let's bow our heads in prayer and seek the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that you've given to us, Lord. We pray that our thoughts, the words of our mouth, and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you, Lord, that the work that has been stirring, that the Holy Spirit has been active and doing leading up to this week, 
would shine forth in this moment, Lord, that it would be your words and not mine, that you would bless the meditations, the thoughts that uh, have come to mind as we have studied this passage uh, and worked through it, Lord. I pray that your spirit would be among us today. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. So, to best understand this text of Hebrews 10, we have to move in context of how this passage has led us. If you remember two weeks ago, Jalen brought us through verses 1 through 18. This is the theological grounding for this chapter, right? That Jesus is our great high priest, that he is seated, the finished work of Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, mediating for us before the Father. Verses 19 through 25, then, we talked about last week. These are the blessings or the promises of God given to us who believe in him, who believe in God. Uh, Remember what the Passion says. Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, let us approach with the true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now today we start in verses 26 through 31, which in short are the consequences of rejecting Jesus' high priestly work. But the author doesn't finish there. They bring us through to verses 32 through 39, which is an exhortation for those who are in Christ to persevere. And so in short, Hebrews 10 takes us, a deep, takes us through a deep dive into the consequences, the implications of Jesus' high priestly ministry. As one commentator puts it, this is the promise and the peril of Jesus' work. The promise and the peril of Jesus' work. And this is a theme we return to time and time again. Remember, we have in the Old Testament the Day of Atonement, and we have the high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people of Israel. Remember, there's this folklore that uh, the people of Israel tie a rope around the high priest's foot so that if the high priest falls before the Lord, uh, they can pull the high priest out and he's not stuck in there because no one else is allowed to go in there. And so this is the framework that we have, right? And so, first, like I said, we turn to the consequences of rejecting Jesus' role as our high priest. And this language is harsh and it's disruptive It's offensive, and it's abrupt, and there's no way around it. There's no way around it. But the main point that I want to illustrate and show in this passage, and show especially in this first half, helps guide us in understanding how we approach these warning passages, how we reconcile this wrathful and judgmental God with the God of the Bible that we see as loving and caring and compassionate. And it's this, it's this. For the greatness of the blessings that we reap from Jesus' work, there are firm warnings for those who willingly reject and blaspheme this work of Jesus. For the greatness and blessings that we receive from Jesus' work on the cross, there are firm warnings for those who reject and blaspheme this work. Because for all these glorious blessings we receive as recipients of Jesus' ministry, the consequences are great because the cost, the cost was so great. Jesus to die on the cross for us. I can't speak for any of you, but I I recognize that uh, these passages have often been used, and I'm sure that there are many of us sitting here today who have heard these passages to bat us over the head, to shame us, that come from a place of self-righteousness, of someone telling us that if we sin at all, if we commit the wrong sins, that there's no longer a sacrifice for us. But that's not what the text is saying here. I also can't speak for any of you, but I I understand that this passage for myself strikes fear in my heart. Like Steve said, there's a fear of the Lord that is healthy, 
that leads us to obedience and love. And then there's a very vulnerable and real fear, fear that I felt reading this passage. And it's not a righteous fear of the Lord. It's one that God is vengeful, that God's not on my side, that God is looking to harm me or to hurt me uh, and not have what is best in mind for me. And so because we know that God is loving and caring, that God is one who sacrifices himself and is compassionate, we have to sit in these passages that the Lord has for us with that in mind. So I encourage us to, as we walk through this text, hold in confidence, like we talked about last week, the security we have in Christ and the work that Jesus has done for us, but also a very real humility and a conscious awareness that we are not exempt from the idolatry of sin. That the author of Hebrews, as you are listening and as we will go through this text verse by verse, is writing to those who have received the knowledge of truth and have already been sanctified by the blood of the covenant. And so if you would open up your Bibles to Hebrews 10, uh, chapter 10, verses 26 and 27 is where we'll begin. We'll open this passage with great humility and great reverence for the word of God. For if we willfully persist in sins, after having received the knowledge of truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you were to hear these two verses without the context that we have in Hebrews, where do you think they would come from? Where do you think these verses would be located in the Bible? The Old Testament, right? This is very clear warning language, and it's drawn directly from the prophets. This is exactly the words that we hear in the Old Testament. We see this language of fury of fire or, or fiery zeal in Zephaniah, a book of judgment, a prophetic book of judgment. It's in Isaiah 66, 15. The Lord declares that he will come and fire against his enemies. And commentators say that the author of Hebrews is directly drawing this passage, his, this writing in verses 26 and 27, from Isaiah 26, 11, that says, A wrath will take the undisciplined people, and now a fire will consume the enemies. And so if you look at Isaiah 26, it's interesting because the way that the author is drawing from Isaiah 26 is then drawing from the context. So Isaiah 26, you see the author depicting a very stark contract which contrast between the righteous who walk in the ways of God and long for his presence and the wicked who go on doing evil in spite of God's grace towards them. The former look forward to the judgments of God on earth and the latter belong to the ranks of God's enemies for whom this fire is reserved. And again, saints, this is a counterbalance to God's love and grace and mercy. For all that it costs for us to have these things, there is an equal cost for those who know and choose to reject. Similar to chapter 6, which is also a warning passage that we have walked through, the author is showing us here that there is no alternative to salvation. Jesus is the only way. For those who have turned their backs on the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice to which all, all sacrifices, all of the Old Testament point towards, then there's no sacrifice for sins left because the alternative to Jesus is only a fearful prospect of judgment. If salvation is only found through Jesus Christ, then to know him and to turn away from him is to only turn towards judgment. Again, for all the benefits we reap for being united with Christ and his salvific work, there is an equal consequence for those who deny this work. To illustrate this, the author, I was thinking as I was 
going through this, what's an illustration for this? And then I just looked at the next verses down and the author gives us an illustration, which is the best way for this to happen. And so in verses 28 through 31, the author gives us an illustration uh, comparing the law of Moses to the new covenant of Jesus. Starting at verse 28, if anyone has violated, or the word here is rejected, the law of Moses, they die without mercy on the testimony of two to three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were saved, and outraged the spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The author is making a very explicit comparison here. They're saying to their Judeo-Christian reader, one who is familiar with the Old Testament, probably part of the Jewish tradition, and then now has understood Christ to be revealed as who he is, the Son of God, the long-anticipated and awaited Messiah. And he's saying to them, you remember the law of Moses, right? You remember the Old Testament law in which you were governed, and that was meant to set you apart. That was, do you remember in the Old Testament, do you remember how your people, the people of Israel, had to be protected, protected from the purity of God, not invited into it, but kept from it because it was too great. It was too holy. Do you remember how you were given this law to set you apart from the other people? But how the people of Israel, your ancestors, time and time again, chose to reject this law, chose to take another route, to diverge and do something different, and therefore were sent into exile in Babylon, not only for a spiritual death, but a physical one. How much greater, the author asks, do you think is deserved for those who reject Jesus, the Son of God? How much infinitely greater is the blood of Jesus that establishes a new covenant from the blood of lambs that established the old? This is consistent with the author's argument throughout the book of Hebrews. And as you've been tracking along through this sermon series, we see this. These are themes that we've already seen littered throughout the book of Hebrews so far. In chapter 8, the author argues that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Uh, that's chapter 8, verses 3 through 13. Chapter 7, they show how the new covenant priest is greater than the old covenant priest. And in chapter 9, that the new covenant sacrifice is superior in every way to the sacrifices of old. Therefore, as one commentator puts it, it is logical that those who reject the superior workings of God through his Son deserve a greater punishment than those who rebelled under an older revelation. And don't miss, don't miss the language here, saints. It's frightening. It's terrifying because the author doesn't just tell us what the punishment is. They invite us to imagine what this punishment is. They're not simple. They are inviting us to imagine. The word here is dokiete. It's translated as, as what do you think or suppose? How much worse of a punishment do you suppose the one who persists in sin deserves? And the language in Greek here does not uh, lighten the load or the weight of this passage. The word here is a, is a fairly rare word. It's, it's tamoria. And it's not the gentle punishment of a loving father. You read this right in the New Testament, that the father disciplines his children out of love because he cares for them and it guides them in the right direction. That word would be something along the lines of pedea. But this is tamoria. This is the word we see in Revelation for God coming down in fire and judgment coming in fury to wipe out all that is evil in the world. And so with this language in mind, the author asks, how much worse do you think it will be deserved for those 
who persist in sin. But the other part of this passage, this warning that we need to know, is that we can't take this language simply by verses 26 and 27, right? We've learned this throughout our discipleship courses, that when we read Scripture, we read it in its entirety. Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't just pull these verses out of context, but we see them in light of their chapters, in light of their books, in light of the New Testament and the Old Testament, in light of all of Scripture. And so when the author says here that those who persist in sin, for, their, for them there is no judgment, this is con seemingly contradictory to what the rest of Scripture says, that says we are fallen, that says we will persist in sin, that says we cannot attain salvation for ourselves, that we cannot act rightly, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us, even when we do fail. And so the author of Hebrews gives us three distinct characteristics of who they are talking about when they say the one who deliberately sins or the one who persists in sin. And so this is important, saints, because this aligns us to understand who this warning is specifically for. First, the author is offering us a warning to those who show contempt towards Jesus Christ. The language here is they have spurned the Son of God. Some translations say that they trample the Son of God underfoot. And this, saints, is idolatry. It's idolatry. It's trampling Jesus. It's putting him below and walking over him in pursuit of something else. And what does the Old Testament, what does the, the Ten Commandments say? You shall have no other gods before me. So what is this? It's idolatry. It's worship towards dead, false idols. The verb here uh, for trampled underfoot is interestingly found in the Gospel of Matthew. It refers to a parable that we're certainly common with. Uh, the salt that has lost its flavor and is cast out as worthless is then trampled underfoot. And also, in the, the parable of Matthew 7, we see that there are pearls cast before swine, which then the swine trample them underfoot. And so what is the author saying here? It's a mix of this language of idolatry, that we trample Jesus underfoot, but we also take the benefits of Jesus' high priestly ministry, and we trample those underfoot. We take the gifts that we've been given, and we use them for the opposite of their intended purposes, trampling God's gifts under our feet with no, no regard for their great cost, their intention, or the power that these gifts give us through the Holy Spirit. The second characteristic we are given is that the persistent sinner seeks to reverse the high priestly role of Jesus. They profane the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. Listen to, to the irony of this, saints. To profane the blood that we are sanctified by. A more literal translation here is that they render common. The word is koinos, the blood of the covenant. And koinos is connotated as a sense of unholiness. It's something that is just normal. It is average. It's not set apart in any way. And so the person who persists in sin is one who looks at the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, but which made them whole, and say it's nothing. It's common. It is an everyday thing. It is nothing to be held in reverence. It is nothing to worship. It is nothing of special importance. I like the imagery that Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message version of the Bible in that translation, he uses, he uses this he's, to interpret this passage. He says that the persistent sinner spits on the sacrifice that made them whole. And the image that immediately came to mind when I read that is Jesus carrying his cross up to Golgotha, up to Calvary, to die for our sins. In this moment, both being the great high priest, covering and leading and initiating the sacrifice and simultaneously being the sacrificial lamb. And what, is, what do the Gospels tell us 
happens to Jesus as he's carrying the cross through the streets of Jerusalem. He's mocked and he's spit upon as the high priest and the slaughtered lamb. And so the persistent sinner, the author is trying to give us a very weighty image that to be the one who holds the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and yet chooses to be those among the crowd who decide to spit on him and spit on the sacrifice that made us whole. And finally, the persistent sinner is one who insults and mocks the spirit of grace. And this, simply saying, is, is the work of blasphemy. It's the, it's the sin of blasphemy. It's disdaining the spirit of God and denying the gospel's true origin and importance. And of course, the weight of blasphemy is that it's not only a mockery of God's grace through the given through the spirit, but it is a mockery of the giver of grace. To insult the spirit is to cut at the very means of experiencing the favor of God. So what is persisting in sin and what is not persisting in sin? Well, we're given these three characteristics. That is how we can identify who the author is talking about. The author is saying if you enter into the covenant and then deny it, and you continue to go on sinning, then yes, there's judgment. But here is the thing. Based on the rest of scripture, based on the rest of Hebrews 10, the new covenant empowers us and gives us the framework in which we can be obedient. So all is not lost and all is certainly not hopeless. So what does obedience look like so often? A discontentment and a frustration with our disobedience. Obedience so often looks like a discontentment and a frustration with our disobedience. It's an increasing awareness that the things we desired were never good for us. And that the sinful nature within us does still crave those things and therefore we need more of God. As Pastor Scott said a few weeks ago, the new covenant does not empower us to do anything on our own. It leads us right back into the utter, humble reliance upon God and his sufficiency. To sin as we all do, in the context of the new covenant established by the blood of Jesus and sustained through the power of the Spirit, is to have the promises of God stand between us and judgment. It is to have the promises of God, Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, standing between us and judgment. And the author then concludes with a very chilling single sentence. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Simply put, saints, for those who choose to worship false dead idols, for those who choose to trample God under their feet, profane the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified and mock the spirit, deliberately persisting in sin, there's judgment. And this judgment comes at the hand of a living God. We made it through the judgment passage. We did it. Take a breath. Uh, because where we're moving next uh, is hopeful. Where we're moving next, this is a warning we just walked through for those who decide to willfully persist in sin, for those who have knowledge of who Jesus is and choose to reject that knowledge, choose to turn away. But the author doesn't end there. The author ends with a joyful and hope-filled exhortation for those who are in Christ. So let's recap once again, remembering where we have stepped so far through this chapter. We started with a summary, Jesus' high priestly ministry, the theological grounding for the chapter. Then we talked last week about the positive benefits we reap because of Jesus' work. We just talked now about the consequences of rejecting this work. And in our remaining time, we turn to a hope-filled encouragement, starting at verse 32. But recall the earlier days, when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution 
and sometimes being partnered or being identified with those so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in, who, those who were in prison, or as another translation said, you suffered alongside the prisoners. You cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possess something better and more lasting. Saints, this first exhortation is an exhortation to remember. But what does it mean to remember, and what does remembering do for us? Well, remembering is always throughout Scripture about God. Even though the author calls us here to remember times of faithfulness, it's ultimately a call to remember how God has been faithful to us, and therefore, we may act. Knowledge and recollection of God's divine attributes and providence are always the basis for our obedience. Think of Exodus. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It is always in the attributes of God, remembering who God is, that lead us into obedience. Think also in the Old Testament that when God provides for the people of Israel, what do they do? They build shrines and they dig wells, like Jacob's well. They're physical reminders of God's providence to us. But think also of what we're about to partake in in just a few minutes. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for a new covenant, poured out for your salvation. Do this in remembrance of me. Saints, when we partake in communion, we are not only cognitively remembering, but we are physically, with our bodies, remembering. We're taking the elements that signify Christ's high priestly work and the blessings, the promises that come from Jesus' high priestly work, and we take them, we taste them, the sweetness of the, the, sweetness of the wine or the juice, the bread, the substance of it. We chew it and we digest it and metabolize it. And in a very ordinary and yet miraculous way, the promises of God and the work of Jesus become a part of our bodies and begin flowing through our veins. Jesus and the work of Jesus becomes a very part of our being through this act of tangibly and physically remembering. Saints, also don't miss this beautiful call to imagine once again. Whereas we just heard a call to imagine how great of a punishment it is for those who reject Jesus, now we have a new commandment, a new opportunity to imagine. Here the author encourages the reader to remember how they showed endurance and to remember how the Lord has been faithful. There's also an element here of what faithful Christian living looks like, partnership and identification with those who are persecuted. And who does this sound like? Jesus. It's the, Sunday, it's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. The author declares in chapter 4, since we have a great high priest who himself is tested in every way, he is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And since it doesn't get clearer than this, what the author of Hebrews is pointing to is faithful Christian living, is participating in our own small ways in Jesus' high priestly work. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being identified, sometimes being known, known to be alongside or standing with those so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew yourselves held a better possession and a abiding one. The Greek word here is sympatheia, which of course, as you might infer, is yes, sympathy, but even more so, Empathy. 
that communicates this idea of being affected by the same suffering, the same impressions, the same emotions as another person. It is compassion put to action by rendering aid to those who are marginalized and under the weight of oppression. And so with this in mind, where does the author of Hebrews lead us in these closing verses of chapter 10, verses 35 through 39? Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. It brings with it a great reward. For you need endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and are saved. This, saints, is an exhortation to have confidence that we, that we just read in verses, 29, in verses 19 through 25. This is the opposite of persisting in sin, to have confidence in the work of Jesus and to continue to, to, to turn back to him instead of plowing ahead with no regard for the consequences of our sin. It is confidence in the work of Jesus. It is an encouragement for those who submit themselves to the supreme and divine authority of God to draw near to the throne of God in confidence that Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, is interceding for us as our high priest. Saints, don't miss that this passage and the entire book of Hebrews is centered not around us and our works and our actions, but on Jesus. The author says, don't abandon your confidence. And he's not saying, saying this to bolster our pride or our self-righteousness. The reason we remain confident is because of, because of the one in whom our confidence lies, Jesus Christ, the one who is coming and will not delay. And this confidence in Jesus Christ leads to a final encouragement. We are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and are saved. Saints, what is the title of this entire series? Resilient faith. What does the author of Hebrews tell us here? Be resilient. Persevere. Endure through hard struggles and times of temptation. In times where it feels like sin is the better option. In times where we are so discouraged by our sin that we feel it is better to just continue in it than to once again humbly approach the Lord and ask for forgiveness. Don't forget the warning that we just read, that those who were enlightened and had knowledge of truth turned away. Read this passage in humility that we are not immune or unable to turn away. But remember that when the author calls us to endurance and perseverance and resilience, we're called into an active faith that is not complacent, that does not grow complacent or still or content with our sin, but continues to grow in knowledge of truth, and despite our times of failure and our times of persisting in sin, to continue to draw back to the Lord. This is the ongoing work of the here and not yet, the language that we've used a lot around here, that we are sanctified. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we are sanctified, and yet we are continually being sanctified day by day. We are righteous, and yet being made righteous as the grace of God flows over us and is renewed day by day. But why can we do this, saints? Why can we draw near? Because Jesus did it first. Who showed the greatest resilience? Jesus did on the cross. Who didn't lose faith? Jesus did. And because we are, we are rooted and united in Jesus Christ and his eternal resilience, resilience for us has already been 
accomplished. And so we can move forth into the world with joy and with confidence because we know that victory has already been secured. And because of the resilient work of God accomplished through Jesus Christ, we too can now be resilient. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've given to us, for the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, through living a perfect life, in perfect obedience, for coming incarnate, both fully God and fully man, and sacrificing himself, both as the great high priest and as the sacrificial lamb on the cross for us. Lord, I pray that we would take hold and hold fast to the blessings of your son, Jesus Christ, the blessings that come through him. Lord, I pray that if there are those of us here who might identify ourselves as persisting in sin based on what your author, the author of Hebrews tells us, that we return back. It is not too late. Lord Christ, I pray that you would be with us, that you would continue to have the Spirit work in us, renewing us day by day, making us more and more into the image of your Son. And so, Lord, we pray this to you. We pray this to you, Father, in the name, the mighty name and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.